Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Rooted Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panetta, and we are in downtown Salem, Oregon, as always, in studio today. It's actually a Saturday, which is kind of unique for me to come in the studio and record, but I'm with a friend today, and it was the only day he could make it down because he has a very busy schedule as a doctor, which we'll introduce him here shortly. But as always, I'd like to give a little bit of a spiel on why it is that we're doing this and why we have the show. The Rooted Leadership Podcast is connected to our Leadership Institute, Groundwork, which is home here to Salem. And Groundwork is truly meant to raise the tide of leaders in our community now and for many years to come. And we call it a leadership podcast, but we've actually found, you know, thousands of downloads and we have all walks of life. So it's not only leaders that are listening, a lot of different people, all different ages and backgrounds are listening because the things that we talk about are can relate to anyone. And so no matter who you are, leader, non-leader, doesn't matter. We just appreciate you tuning in. If this is your first time, welcome. If you're a returning listener, as always, thank you for uh, listening to the show. But let's get into our uh, show today and introducing our guest. So our guest's name is Caleb Freeman. He's a personal friend to me. So let me tell you a little bit about Caleb. And he's sitting across the table from me right now. So I, I want to turn the time to him quickly. But uh, I've known Caleb for a number of years now. He actually went to med school. Uh, at Creighton University, which is where I got my master's degree. And I was in like this hybrid program. So I had to go out there for a few few residencies and he and his wife would always let me stay at their house. So (laughs) I'm indebted to you, man. Uh, And uh, Caleb is a a real medical doctor. Uh, I always think of the show Friends. If any of you have seen Friends, Ross Geller He's like a paleontology (laughs) doctor. You know what episode I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. They go in the, they go in the, the hospital and and uh, he says something like, I'm a doctor too. And, and Rachel says, Ross, these are real doctors. <laughs> so I'm getting my PhD, but Caleb, he's, getting, he's a real doctor. You'll uh, have more letters at the end of your name though. So <laughs> Yeah, there we go. Um, so a little bit more about Caleb. Uh, you know, he's a doctor and I'll let him tell you about what he does, but just a fun connection. You know, his, his wife and my wife are, you know, best friends in, in a lot of ways. They grew up uh, together. And I actually know Caleb's in-laws very well. I uh, went to high school with their kids, was always at their their house and just love their family. So a lot of uh, connections and a lot of reasons why I, I just enjoy this guy. Um, and it's funny too, because I didn't know you until you married Maria. <laughs> and then I'm like, wow, I actually like Caleb way more than Maria. Maria, <laughs> no offense. <laughs> I'll make her listen yeah. to that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just teasing Maria, but uh, Caleb is just awesome really easy to get along with. Um, and I felt like I was uh, immediately uh, friends with him, didn't take long. So he's just a wonderful person to have on the show. A lot of reasons why we wanted him on the show. We haven't had a whole lot of people in the medical field join us. And I think they bring a really unique perspective, especially given the year we just had. And Caleb was in the ICU, correct? For <laughs> Yeah, it's a been lot of COVID. Three like, months of the last year in the ICU. Yeah, so. I mean, and so he's got, a, am sure, a lot to to share their front lines with with everything that was going on. Uh, and so look forward to hearing about that also. Uh, but Caleb, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself further? You know, tell us more details about what you do as a doctor, because doctors can do a lot of different things. Uh, what you focus on, um, you know, why did you want to become a doctor? And then a little bit more about, you know, you as a person. Perfect. Sounds great. Uh, well, first off, um, I think what makes me me is more than anything, my family. So you mentioned Maria already. She's been a huge support. We've been through a lot in the last couple of years, not just through school, but uh, within our family. We've had uh, a surprise diagnosis of cystic fibrosis in our daughter, which yeah. was quite the shock. And uh, Maria has been a champ through it all and really helped me get through all my schooling and training. And so yeah. uh, She's my primary support. And then we also have two two little ones, Luca, three-year-old, and then uh, a daughter, Desi, who uh, just turned one. Yeah. And so, you know, they mean everything to me and uh, they're the reason I am who I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. And then I guess more professionally, uh, I recently finished my intern year uh, at, in internal medicine at Providence St. Vincent's in the kind of greater Portland area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent three months working in the ICU and six months working on the regular hospital floor. And um, 
you know, as a resident, you work pretty heavy hours. You spend a lot of time in the hospital. Uh, the reason they call it resident is because traditionally in the past, you pretty much lived at the hospital. So <laughs> Yeah, I, know. I remember sometime, a couple of times we've hung out and you've told me your hours. I mean, it was crazy. It was busy. They're, they're better than they used to be. They kind of cap us at 80 hours a week, averaged over four weeks now. So, you know, occasionally I would go over 80 hours, but... I'd have to kind of cut back a little bit the next week. So so much, man. Yeah, it was it was a busy year for sure. (laughs) That's crazy. Recently, it just slowed down though, because now you're kind of in your specialty area, right? Which is dermatology. Exactly. So uh, there's not too many dermatology emergencies unless you count (laughs) pimples on Promenade. But (laughs) yeah, yeah, that's that's great, man. So that's I mean that's a heavy year. You know, you you're new doctor, but you've spent years in school. So tell us about that dynamic of you know what? I mean, without COVID, it's just a big jump. And we were talking about this pre-recording, jumping from being just you know a medical student, you're learning, you're you know still technically bottom of the totem pole, <laughs> and then boom, you're a doctor, and all of a sudden, this leadership role that you n- probably didn't fully expect, and uh, everybody's looking to you for answers. Probably people twice your age, nurses, <laughs> you know, that are coming to you, and you have to lead. So that alone is a big responsibility and a big shift, but then you put like COVID on top of it. So your your first year out of med school, COVID nineteen. <laughs> so tell us about all of that, man. I'm sure that there's so much learning that happened there. Absolutely, there there was a lot of unknown. I, I think for everybody in the last year, not just people in the medical field, but you know, COVID was a new disease, a, a lot of new research coming out, new guidelines. No one really knew what was going on for for the early part of the pandemic and. Uh, starting out as an intern at that time was was crazy. Um, y- you go from being a medical student who can kind of pawn off any responsibility, any difficult questions. You can say, oh, I'll go ask the doctor. Um, and then, you know, July 1st rolls around and you walk in the hospital and you are the doctor and, and the medical students turn to you and the nurses come to you. And um, you wish there was a magic switch that you could flip on and say, oh, yeah, I know everything. I'm, I'm a doctor. Uh, but it's very much a process of becoming a physician and it doesn't happen overnight and um, it gets more comfortable. But uh, the, even at the end of the year, there were times where I was unsure or uncertain. Well, I mean, the, the, the title intern doesn't really do it justice because <laughs> yeah. if I was in a hospital and uh, an intern doctor walks by or a, nor- a regular doctor, I'm not going to tell oh, the yeah. difference. So it's like it, the the idea, the term intern makes it sound like you know, it's not official, but you were you're doc you were a doctor, and, and people are looking to you for answers. Um, so, what was tell us about the just the leadership that that you know was all of a sudden casted upon you, and 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 the learning curve with that. Because, and I'll, I'll one last thing, and then I'll turn the time to you. But I say this often, and I've said it a few times on the show. Leadership is is something that most people aren't prepared for, right? Uh, and there's not necessarily a class, just a, a 101 on it. I mean, there's a lot of literature on leadership, but typically people are thrown into leadership because they excelled in something. So in the business world, maybe they were a great salesperson. So then they're promoted to a leadership role and boom, all of a sudden they're a leader, <laughs> right? And for you, you went to school to become a doctor, but then the title doctor all of a sudden makes you a leader when you're when you're at, in a hospital, for example, and people come to you. So um Talk to us specifically about the leadership that absolutely just was yeah. thrust. You said earlier thrusted onto yeah. you. It uh yeah knocked me out a little bit. Um, I think medical school does a great job teaching us basic science and diseases, pathology, uh, everything that can go wrong in the body and what we can do to fix it. Uh, there isn't as much education and time spent on leadership, <laughs> and so we show up into the hospital, and uh, you're right, you are kind of thrust into a role of the leader, the the pharmacist, the nurses, uh, the medical assistants, CNAs, everyone looks to you as the final end-all, say-all. And it's one thing to know how things happen in a book and another thing entirely how they work on a day-to-day life in the hospital. And I guess just one example early on in my intern year, uh, I ordered a blood transfusion for some packed red blood cells and some platelets as well. Um, And I knew that that's what the patient needed because I saw the labs and we needed to get those numbers up. But the nurse called me and said, hey, I just have a question. Do you know, can I put 
one in the left arm and one in the right arm? Do I need to put them both in the same arm? And that's, you know, one of the practical things that you don't learn about as a medical student. Uh And I don't know necessarily know if there is a right or wrong answer, but (laughs) you know, there I am, I have to make a decision and uh, you just kind of say what makes sense, I guess, (laughs) uh, and hope it goes well. (laughs) Um, But uh, I think I learned a lot about trusting my instincts and trusting what I knew and then just following up I in that yeah. situation, you know, circling back 30, 45 minutes later, making sure everything was okay with the patient, everything that was mm-hmm. okay with the nurse. And um, it was a whirlwind of a year for sure. Yeah. What What about the, the dynamic, um, you know, and this probably plays out in a lot of ways for people in different organizations, different sectors, but uh, did you ever feel anything with maybe the, you know, age difference or experience? I mean, probably some of these nurses have been nurses since you were maybe a kid. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Right. And now, <laughs> now you're the one with the title of doctor, technically, like you said, final say, I mean, what's that like? It was interesting. I think one of the wisest thing I heard coming in, uh, before my first ICU rotation, one of the more senior residents told me, if you're ever in doubt of what to do and there's an ICU nurse around, say, what would you do in this situation and see if they can help you out? <laughs> And uh, I I think that's the great thing about medicine is you are part of a team. And, um, you know, so many of the ICU nurses have been working with residents and interns for years and years, and they've seen so much and helped so many people. And so uh, it's nice to know, even if I am the end all say all decision maker, that I can rely on their experience and they're willing to share it. And ultimately, the focus is on the patient and getting the patient through whatever sickness or illness brought them into the hospital. Yeah. I want to come back to this idea of decision-making. I'm making a note um, in a second, but I have a question that might be ignorant because I just don't know, um, but I'm curious. Is is the medical field, let's say like the hospital environment, is there, I mean, is there, is it pretty hierarchy, you know, is there hierarchy there that's pretty well-known and respected kind of like in the military? I mean, is it, is it, does that exist? Like if you're the doctor, then just because that title's there, boom, everything kind of, there's a hierarchy beneath it. I mean, explain that to me. And then I know there, there's admin side of it as well. So how's it all? Yeah, absolutely. That like? That's a great question. And I think a lot of it depends on the individual team you're on. I, I would say there were certain teams I was on in the hospital where it was very hierarchical. Now, hierarchy. <laughs> doctor, <laughs> Dr. Freeman. Did not uh, graduate with an English degree. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can probably say a bunch of different medical terms. But. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless, the uh, for example, the attending physician who oversees the residents, kind of the top dog. Okay. And then you have the senior resident, the intern, the medical students. You have the the pharmacists and nurses who kind of fit in on other sides of the the totem or ladder. And so you know, the attending physician has the the final say and. I worked with some attendings who very much wanted to be the top dog and make sure everyone knew they were the top Mm, dog and made sure the medical student knew their place, you Uh know? And then other attendings who very much wanted a team atmosphere, wanted to make sure everyone felt comfortable speaking up and and sharing their ideas, sharing their concerns, sharing what they heard from the patient. And it was interesting watching the different leadership styles and and how it impacted patient outcomes. Yeah. Tell us about that. I mean, how did it, you know, how did kind of the power dynamic where they make it known that I'm in charge because power dynamics are interesting. And I've talked with leaders about this before is their leadership brings power dynamics and power dynamics have such a negative connotation in our world today, but power is there for a reason, right? And it's, it's meant to be wielded. I just wrote a paper a couple of weeks ago on, on power and how it needs to be wielded well, you know? <laughs> um, so power in and of itself is not bad. It's what we do with it. Uh, but I, I think that power dynamics become negative when leaders need others to know, mm-hmm. you know, that they're in charge. But the interesting thing is, is that when you're the leader, everyone knows you're in charge. So you don't need to remind them of it. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about the outcomes. You said patient mm-hmm. outcomes, which is really important. So the power dynamics, when, when somebody makes it known, you know, there's kind of that sort of toxic side of it. And I'm not telling you to point fingers or blame anybody here, you know, um, just talking in experience. 
versus the more team sort of unified approach, how does each of those affect patient outcomes differently, in your opinion? So I would say in those instances where there was a top dog who wanted everyone to know it, uh, very much what was done and how it was done came back to them. And whatever they knew was how it was done. And, Mm -hmm. you know, most of the time these are are brilliant people who've spent years going through school and training. And so often that knowledge is enough. But I would say that in those situations where everyone felt willing to speak up and, and make their ideas known, I think we got places where often we wouldn't have if we had relied on just a single individual's plan and idea. Mm. Uh, One instance comes to mind when uh, we had a young man admitted to the intensive care unit Mm -hmm. who uh, his brain was not working well. He he was confused. He could not speak clearly. No one knew what was going on. His uh, brain imaging had come back normal, uh, but he was just not making any sense. We could not figure out what was going on. And you know, we got him stabilized because in ICU, that's your first job is, you know, get the vital signs stable, get the blood pressure okay, make sure he's breathing okay. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, you kind of start figuring out, okay, what's wrong? And each morning we'd kind of have a rounding session where the attending physician, the residents, the nurses, the pharmacists would gather and kind of go from room to room, patient to patient, talking about their their issues and, yeah. and what's next. And so... um. We were at a loss, you know, we, the residents were speaking with attending, we're brainstorming, could it be this disease? Could it be that? Does he have this deficiency? And, um, we were stumped completely. And one of the nurses, uh, brought up, Hey, there was this random nodule seen on his chest X-ray. Like, could this be tuberculosis? And, you know, it was completely out there idea that we hadn't considered because that's not typically the disease presentation. You know, typically that's a lung disease Mm -hmm. and they're coughing up blood and weight loss, night sweats. Um, But it was something we hadn't considered Mm -hmm. and it fit. Yeah. And so, you know, we ended up running the the tuberculosis test, the quantiferon gold and uh, came back positive. And so we got there because the attending physician was okay to listen. He yeah. he really promoted that atmosphere where everyone yeah. could throw out ideas. And, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes people threw out ideas and they're ridiculous and, mm-hmm. and we didn't order the test, but by promoting that atmosphere that, you know, everyone contributes, everyone yeah. is caring for the same patient. Yeah. I think we, we got somewhere we wouldn't have been. Yeah. No, that's a great, that's a perfect example. And I think that applies across the board in any team environment, any sector, any organization. Um, and you know, in our in our leadership institute, we talk a lot about soil and cultivating the soil. And that sounds like a leader who who truly cultivated the soil and allowed each person, you know, under their stewardship of leadership, to be seen and to have a voice. Um, never, you know, jeopardizing that there's a power dynamic there for a reason. That you know they are in charge for a reason, but that they they created that environment to where anybody could share without you know, a worry of being seen a certain way or losing something, they don't feel threatened. Um, To us, that's healthy soil, right? And uh, we talk a lot about, and I shared this a little bit with you before, but, you know, seeds and um, ideas and and getting the very best ideas. Because the question is, is we have ideas every day, all day. And you shared a bunch of, you shared an example of several ideas that you could have had. And these were all ideas trying to solve a problem. Um, different than, you know, perhaps a business problem, you're dealing with somebody's life, right? <laughs> so a little bit more weight there, but, but ideas come and go just as, you know, so quickly, we have many of them throughout the day, but how do we get the very best ideas? Um, and how do we ensure that those ideas work and are sustained? And, and so we, in our seed section, we talk about humility as one of the first steps to innovation. And it sounds like this particular leader that you had, um, had that attribute of, of humility, right? To where it's okay, they're okay not having all the answers, mm-hmm. um, which is which I imagine is harder in the in the medical field, and maybe you see this in the military as well because of the hierarchy. The, I'm going to try to say the word hierarchical. <laughs> <Yeah>. hierarch- <laughs> <laughs> now we we both lost it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm going to be a PhD <laughs> soon. You are a doctor. We <laughs> yeah. can't even say a word. Uh, hopefully, listeners are laughing. Anyways, the hierarchy that's there. I think it's probably unique in medical field, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, and perhaps the military, where there's a title that holds a, you know, such a weight. 
maybe differently in, you know, than it would in a business or a nonprofit to where it's like, hold on. I mean, you, you have met a lot more years of education, a lot more years of expertise. You've obviously done the work to get that title. So therefore you should know everything, right? <laughs> um, that's, I think that's a, probably a little different to your industry than perhaps others. So it's probably harder in my opinion, for leaders to have humility there and be like, I don't need to have the answer. <laughs> yeah, I um, think as a new doctor, that was one of the hardest things for me to say was, I don't know. You yeah, know, when a family s- would say, you know, how much oh. longer do we have with our our, oh our dad, you know, or... Um, yeah, I'm not... And we haven't even talked about like communication with patients. That's... Yeah. There's probably an immense amount of pressure there. So keep going. <laughs> I mean... But yeah, I, I think getting to the point where I felt comfortable saying... I don't know, but, but I will know, you know, give me some time. I'll go speak to the team, speak to the nurses, speak to my attending. Uh, I think when I realized that that was an option and that patients were okay with that, you know, Mm. uncertainty is a big part of medicine and we all want answers. And I think it's important for patients to know that there is some uncertainty. Yeah. And when I got to the point where I could be honest, I think that made my relationships with my patients that much better. They mm-hmm. knew that, you know what, Dr. Freeman is going to go go back to his team. They're going to sit down. They're going to talk. They're going to research in case reports and the literature and the textbooks and, and find an answer. Um, that meant a lot more to people than me making something yeah, up. You're that, just trying to look like you know it all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, people can see right through that. And we talk about that a lot as in, in the Institute as well. The It's probably one of our core principles is the idea of seeing people. And we can see people uh, and have the answers, and we can see people not have the answers. And people are going to tell the difference, mm-hmm. right? Um, people are going to tell when when we see people and we don't have the answers, they're going to fill it versus when we are not seeing them as a person that matters, try to fumble through it and make it up. I'm sure that they can fill it. But I mean, what you brought up is a huge amount of pressure because in the medical field, Again, I think there's so many nuances to the medical field from my perspective, not being in the medical field, but needing medical attention, <laughs> you know, throughout my life. It, we expect as a, as a patient, let's say, we expect the doctor to have the answers, you know. Um, it, it's just one of those services that's provided to where it's like, dude, you should know this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like when I'm getting my computer fixed and I want the IT guy, it's like, dude, you should know this, right? <laughs> this is your job. And it's your job. Yeah. And so there's probably a ton of pressure of... Well, tell me what's wrong, but you're right. Uh, you're human, and and allowing people to see your humanity and 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 being honest and and forthright with them um, goes a long way. Versus, you know, locking in on one solution that you you know the thing just being so dead set on what you believe it is when you could be wrong, or like you said, just trying to tell them what they want to hear. <laughs> uh, people can definitely feel that. And there's been plenty, I think I, maybe you know this studies here, but I, I think I heard of something not too long ago that there's just thousands of misdiagnosis, you know, oh, yeah. uh, every day, Oh yeah. you know? And mm-hmm. so doctors make mistakes, which is not necessarily comforting to know, but we should <laughs> understand that these are human beings and they're not perfect and they're doing their best, right? I'm sure just like in any industry, there's probably not good doctors. Just like there's not good police officers. There's not good salesmen there. There's not good bus drivers, whatever it is. I'm sure that there's doctors out there that are just not good doctors. But obviously, for the most part, people become doctors because, you know, they want to they want to help people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that's an interesting nuance there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to come back to I, I want to. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about humility, but I also want to talk about decision making. So um, let's talk. Let's talk about decision making for a second. There's a difference between decision-making and problem-solving, right? Decision-making, you kind of already have your options in front of you. And Mm -hmm. it's like, we do A, B, or C, or D, right? Where problem-solving is you don't have the options and you need to find them, right? Uh, And you need to discover them. So tell us about the differences. Because I think that that's a very key distinction for anybody to know, especially leaders, but anybody the difference between making a decision and versus problem solving. Oftentimes they might fall into the same basket, but they're not the same. And so in your experience, what's the difference between the two kind of at a practical real life level? Um, and how do you know 
when it's a situation where you should be problem solving or making a decision. Because I think sometimes we get them confused. Absolutely. I think what immediately comes to mind is that there's a time and a place for both. And sometimes you just have to make a decision. Um, I, I Maybe going into, for example, a code situation in the hospital where uh, code blue means someone doesn't have a pulse, they're not breathing. The code team responds. That's usually Are you letting like all of us in on secrets. Top secrets. Tops. No, no. These uh, you'll hear anytime you're at the hospital. If you hear code blue overhead, that means uh, okay. So it's not supposed to be a secret. We could Google that. You can go Google okay. that. Absolutely. Okay. I'm, like, I'm like, are you letting this in? I'm like, secret. don't tell anyone. I'll lose my license. <laughs> um, responding to a code blue, you get there. The priority is make sure there's good CPR happening. You don't have time to really. We don't have time to problem solve. Yeah. You know, you're you're starting chest compressions. You're making sure the ED doc's on the way to be able to intubate if that is necessary. Um, you're getting the pharmacist ready to get epinephrine or amiodarone, depending on what the heart rhythm's showing on the rhythm strip. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there, there's not as much time for problem solving, but someone needs to be making decisions and saying, yeah, we need to give that medicine now. Mm-hmm. We need to do this now. Um, and Sounds like a lot of pressure, man. A lot of pressure. <laughs> First time I went in as a... As an intern, I heard code blue overhead. I was on the code team with another resident who's a more senior resident. I was a couple rooms down. I was just praying, please don't let me be the first one to the room who has to run this code, you know? Uh, luckily, I got there second and the senior resident <laughs> took the lead. But um, it is a lot of pressure to, oh, to yeah. be making those decisions. And I think the important thing that was told to me by a senior resident was, and this may sound a little morbid, but they're already dead. Um you can't make things worse. You can only make things better. So, yeah. so make some decisions, get things rolling and, and we'll problem solve when we have time. Yeah. And, you know, there's situations like that. And then there's situations like the one we discussed before where, you know, we had this guy stabilized. Yeah. Now, why is he so confused? Mm, why is his brain solving. not working? Let's problem solve. And so I think just remembering there's, there's a time and a place where you need to make decisions and there's yeah. a time and a place to, to solve problems. Yeah. And well, and I love humility is keeps coming to mind. I think it's just an important piece in leadership, but it's just relating so much to medical and the medicine field of medicine and, and being a doctor, uh, as I'm hearing you, because humility, it's not, humility isn't thinking low of ourselves, right? Humility brings with it a lot of confidence. And in those moments of decision-making, the humble individual is still going to have confidence in themselves that, you know, I need to make a decision. We need to make it now. Obviously in, in your environment, somebody's life is on the line, right? Um, but also the humility that that bridges to problem solving to where I don't need to have all the answers right now. And uh and not being the first to dominate and to say, because I'm this or because I'm the leader, because I, you know, have this title, therefore my ideas are the best. Mm-hmm. Um I think humility is required in both problem solving and, and decision making, um, which I think is uh, kind of an interesting bridge there. Uh, I want to I want to hear a little bit more about, and maybe we'll keep running with this theme that's kind of surfaced in my, at least in my mind of humility because everything you've been saying, I think humility is a key piece. Um, but I'm sure these are very humbling moments, and you said this to me before recording, but end of life discussions. I mean, this to me. Not ever being in one of those situations, but just imagining it. I mean, the humility that has to just, you know, be be present um, and the learning. I mean, you know, not a lot of us show up to work and we have to make end of life decisions or to have those discussions with people. Um, so so talk us, walk us through what you can, obviously. Um about those situations and what you've learned and and how important humility is in those moments, uh, how humanity just is thrusted upon you, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and what, you know, what that does to you, again, what you're comfortable sharing just as a person and, and what you've learned from all of that. A lot comes to mind. Um, had a lot of these type of conversations over the last year and some went well, some didn't. And going back to what you spoke about earlier that, you know, there's good and bad people in all professions, good doctors, mm-hmm. bad doctors. I think, you know, there's doctors who are good at 
having these discussions and there's doctors who aren't. Mm. Uh, I remember in medical school being part of some discussions that went very poorly where the physician took no time to listen to the the family or the patient to hear their concerns and everyone left feeling sick and angry and medical team was angry. The patient, the family was angry and no one was on the same page. And I think these experiences can be almost spiritual in a way yeah. if they're done right. Uh, I remember watching one physician who's part of the palliative care team uh, at Providence St. Vincent's, the hospital I worked with, who really created an environment for discussion. And they would make sure the room was set. They'd prepare before mm -hmm. going into the room. Everyone was seated. Everyone's thoughts were heard. Everyone's concerns, fears were shared. And contrast that to someone who walked in and said, hey, you have three months, there's nothing we can do. Let me know if you have questions later and walked out, you know? And, oh my gosh, yeah. Um, no one feels good about that. No. And so I, I think over the course of the year, I learned a lot about how to communicate and the importance yeah. of communication and um, setting the stage for a good conversation. Yeah. Well, I mean, it brings to bear, we, we talk, I, I keep saying this, but we talk about this in the, in the Leadership Institute just this deeper way of being, you know, the Arbinger Institute calls it mindset, but the way we see others, how it has a greater impact on what we actually do behaviorally. And, and these environments that you're talking about, it brings that to bear like right away, because either way, the behavior of telling somebody that they have three months to live, let's say is going to be deployed, but how we do it matters so much more to people versus what we say to them. And and so something like communication, communication has to happen, but how do I communicate in a way that takes people truly into account? Because I can walk into a room, like you said, and say, hey, you have three months left. Uh, let me know if you have any questions. <laughs> or I can do what you explained another you know doctor did where they took the time to create an environment to help somebody feel even psychologically safe and, and, and seen um, before, you know, and while they're having that conversation, both are versions of communication. One is just a version of communication that has a higher and better impact. Um, and it just feels like in these environments and in, in, it sounds like in the medical field, end of life discussions, you can't hide behind the right behavior, <laughs> right? <laughs> like you can't hide behind just being outwardly nice. Mm -hmm. You can't just hide behind having a smile on your face or using a soft tone. You really have to care mm -hmm. because people will feel it and they're hyper aware of all of that and emotions are high. So you can't, you can't hide behind it. I, I could, I could probably hide behind a great behavior tomorrow at, you know, next week at work and show up to work and totally be selfish, totally be thinking about myself, but still like do all the nice things and like say hi to everybody and offer my help. But inside it's just all about Chris. <laughs> it sounds like in these environments, as a, as a you know, medical personnel, you can't hide behind that stuff because people are usually not wanting to be there. <laughs> Nobody wants yeah. to. Patients don't want to be in a hospital. <laughs> I mean, let's let's be honest. Like you're dealing with that's another dynamic too. It's you know, people don't want to be at the hospital, right? They certainly don't want to be in the ICU. Uh, so that's a very different customer than somebody shopping at a department store. They usually want to be there, mm -hmm. right? Like a leadership institute. I hope and pray that these leaders want to be there. So <laughs> I'm not dealing with people that are like not at all wanting to be there and emotions are high already. Um, so tell, I mean, speak to that a little bit more. I'm talking theoretically. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like staging things theoretically and hoping that you can talk about them practically, but that idea of you can't hide from the right behavior. You can't hide behind putting on a face mm -hmm. that it's, it's there and, and, uh, people can feel the genuineness or they don't mm -hmm. and how much that impacts them. And, and then respond a little bit to, to perhaps why some doctors aren't in tune to that or they don't care. Is it because they don't want to have to deal with that emotion themselves? So it's a way of kind of coping with the, the, the fragility of life. And, and so they just, they try to like jectify it a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and they don't want to take it on, right? Is that part of it? And I'm rambling now, so I'm going to turn it <laughs> yeah. to you. But you see where you're going. Okay. I, I think, you know, in medicine, like our every day is someone else's worst day, right? Yeah. They're in 
the ICU, they're in the emergency department, something terrible has happened and, you know, we're going to work and it's kind of our day-to-day thing. And so how do you balance, you know, that jadedness where you don't care, it's just your job versus pouring everything of yourself into these people and then, you know, watching them die sometimes, you know, and there was a point in the pandemic when with COVID-19, we're tracking statistics, you know, about 50% of the patients that came into the ICU and were intubated ended up passing away. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how do you pour yourself into your work, into these people and then lose them? Yeah. You know, and, um, it can be hard finding that balance and yeah. And I think for me, it all comes back to communication. I think the times where it was the hardest to have these conversations about end of life were the times where there was not enough communication in the hospital stay. Uh, A lot of the patients, especially with COVID, would end up on a ventilator. They'd be intubated, uh, mechanically ventilated, essentially on life support. They'd be sedated. They wouldn't really have a say in their medical care. Mm -hmm. And then that would go back to their families who... Um, also probably couldn't be there. Could not be there. Exactly. They couldn't see their loved one. Uh, they couldn't see how sick they were, how bad they looked. And, you know, there were some times when I feel like there was good communication with the family. They were very involved. They tried to FaceTime, you know, they, they took my daily calls to hear what was going on. And if it came to the point where we felt we were doing more harm than good with, with our care that we knew they weren't going to get better and we're just prolonging the inevitable. Those people who we were communicating with understood that. Yeah. And they were able to, you know, maybe make a decision to let their loved one pass peacefully rather than with all this artificial life support. Um, in contrast to those who we didn't have great communication with, who who didn't want to see their family member, who didn't want to hear the facts, but just wanted us to do everything. Mm. Um, those are some of the harder conversations where, you know, as, as a medical worker, we, we talk about doing no harm and, you know, we, we try so hard to save people, but there becomes a point where, you know, maybe we are harming people by trying to keep pushing with all the medicine we have. And, and then how do we share that with a family member who, who we aren't communicating well with and how do we make that decision? Those were really hard. Yeah, man, I'm, I, uh. I'm a little bit just blown away. Just, you know, my, my respect for you has grown. I mean, I already respect you. It's just <laughs> grown a lot. Just like trying to imagine your, your life and, and the shoes that you're in, not because necessarily because, um, when you show up to work, you know, you're physically suffering, but the suffering that's going on around you. And it's just, I mean, my respect for you is growing. And what, what came to mind when you're talking about those decisions and especially during COVID where family can't be there, you know, I had an aunt that, that passed away. She was pretty young. I mean, you know, late forties, right. And she passed away. She got COVID and she had other preexisting conditions, I believe, but she passed away when she got it just mm-hmm. suddenly she was sick on a weekend and then went in and a couple of days later it was, she was gone. And, you know, um, one of my cousins, he's, he's, he's my age, just, you know, crushed, crushed their family. My mom, you know, it's her sister crushed, crushed them and, and really sad, but, what was sad to me and, and, you know, I'm removed from the situation, you know, I, she's my aunt and of course I loved her, but I wasn't her child and I wasn't her sibling, you know, but what was sad was that nobody was there, Mm -hmm. right. That my uncle couldn't be there and hold her hand when she passed away. Um, you know, and that, and that, that gets me emotional just thinking about that. Um, but then I'm hearing you and, and you know, you're talking about it and your perspective on those environments and, and that's, gosh, that's got to be hard, mm-hmm. you know, like here, here I am over the last couple of years doing podcasts and <laughs> writing papers on leadership and studying, you know, like, come on, I'm just sitting in an AC office doing that. <laughs> and you're, you know, I mean, it just really brings life into perspective. Um, just medicine in general, because you're dealing with, you're dealing with people's actual lives, <laughs> Right. Like I, I've studied and worked in conflict and that gets pretty heavy mm-hmm. you're dealing with people, but usually not, not, it's not a life or death scenario. Hopefully not right. Conflict can certainly lead to that. But I mean, we're just talking about people's feelings getting hurt in conflict and having them figure it out, which mm-hmm. is an important part to life. But 
you're actually talking about life itself. Uh, man, it's just, it's a, it's incredible to me. And, and, um, I'm just kind of sitting here astounded, you know, um, those environments and the learning that you've gone through. Um, you said thrusted earlier into leadership. That's no joke, man. I mean, <laughs> you have to learn to lead in more ways than one being around those environment in those environments, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I think I never pictured myself you know, having these conversations, you, you picture yourself going into medical school and, and saving everybody, you know, you're, yeah. you're going to figure out the right diagnosis. You're going to give them the right medicine and they're going to get better. The families are going to love you. They're going to adore you and you'll send them out of the hospital and you'll just feel great. And then, you know, as I mentioned early on in the pandemic, we were losing 50% of, of the people who came into the ICU and required intubation. And, you know, it, it wears on you in, in those conversations, just finding out how to help someone down that path and help a family down that path where, you know, we, we've done everything we can and there's nothing else we can do. And, and I'm sorry, you know, but that's all we have. And, and how do we lead that conversation in a way that, you know, no one feels good about the loss, mm-hmm. but at least they can accept it. Yeah. man, humility again, comes back to mind, uh, of how that has to be present, Right. The difference maker, mm-hmm. um, the humble heart, right? Versus the hard heart. Um, it, 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 I don't ever want a, somebody practicing medicine on me or my loved ones with a hard heart. Mm-hmm. I'll put it that way. Uh, I think uh, a humble heart is, is, is what I would prefer uh, <laughs> as somebody that's, you know, um, tending to uh, me or my loved ones medically, especially in these extreme uh, situations. Um, Obviously, all of these are very different than dermatology, <laughs> right? Change of pace, yes, for sure. Yes, big change of pace. <laughs> but but that learning that you had, I think, is going to be invaluable to you the rest of your your career and your life, you know? Um, those moments, because you had no choice but to learn and to lead, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, there wasn't a... It wasn't, a, you know, a, a simple, slow process of learning. It was like, boom. And especially because COVID too. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a that was that added a big dynamic, which you've just talked about. Um, so again, I'm I'm uh, I'm blown away, and I feel really humbled today, um, just having this conversation um, with you. So we have a few more minutes left, and uh, I want to I want to kind of close on this trend of <laughs> that we've developed of humility. But I want to ask you a little bit about um, how you personally, you know, perhaps your faith, your perspective on spirituality and life. Um, how has that changed, perhaps, in in this last, you know, year and 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 doing the work that you do? How important do you think it is for people? Just you know, obviously, you can't speak for others, but you've you've been in these environments where life is on the line how important do you think those things are for people um those the the just the faith in general religion whatever you want to call it spirituality you mentioned spirituality earlier um because it seems like it that's the moments in life where you know it it uh it matters the most now there's you know philosophers and theorists out there that say <laughs> that's why we have religion is to help us through these tough times and sure right there's mm-hmm. you know that's that's true. Obviously, it helps us in the tough times. But obviously, if you're a person of faith, you know it's not just those times. But is it was what I'm saying making sense? Yeah, I would love your perspective yeah. on how things have changed for you, how things have brought you comfort because of what you believe and what you've seen in others dealing with the the delicacy of life, mm-hmm. um, kind of in these these really fragile and and end moments. Yeah, I think. I definitely have been more aware of my mortality mortality in the last year than any other time. Mm. You know, when you're watching someone coming into the ICU who's 25, 27 and, and and losing their life, it it really brings to the forefront of your your brain that yeah. that could happen to me, you know? And I think having those conversations with family as well when they get to the end and yeah. they're they're thinking about, okay, what's next? Um can be very hard for people. And, you know, I'm a Christian yeah. and I think thinking about the future, what happens next after death, um, 
has become a lot more real for me in the last year. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a strong belief that there is a life after this. Yeah. And I think that helped me when I sat down and talked to people who were, who were moving on and, you know, it gave me hope that yeah. it wasn't the end for them. And so, you know, how can I make this short part of their journey a little bit better? Mm-hmm. Uh, how can I help them go to the next phase bravely or honorably, peacefully? And I'm trying to think of how to say, just really strengthened my belief that mm-hmm. there is more than just this life yeah. and I have more to look forward to. And, you know, being an individual on this planet is great. Living with our families is great. Being great at your job feels fantastic. I don't want to believe that one day I'll end up in the ICU and then it's over. Yeah. You know, I I want to believe that there's more and that there's a purpose to life and, and there's something that comes after. And uh, my faith, I think, helps me, helped me in the last year when I had to have those tough conversations because I knew for me at least that there's more. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, after you saying that, just your appreciation of, of life, you know, over the last year, I felt it when you, in your intro, when you talked about how important um, Maria and your kids are to you, right? Like when you see young people come in and they lose their life, obviously it, you know, brings life into perspective to you, you know, and yeah, that you have, you have these little people at home and a family, um, that need you and rely on you. Right. Um, and, and an instant that could be over, right. Mm-hmm. We don't, we typically, we don't think like that, but I think ought, we ought to have a, a self-awareness check-in and have <laughs> some of those thoughts just mm-hmm. like, I couldn't, I could, dis- I couldn't be here tomorrow. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, my employer, uh, our benefactor here, he always asks a question and usually it's in, it's in a really kind of light environment and it, it sounds kind of silly, not morbid, but it's like, Hey, what if you were hit by a train tomorrow? What would happen to everything you're responsible for? Meaning my work, you know, <laughs> cause he's all about, we have to work in a way that is sustainable. So if everything relies upon you, Chris, in your work, if you're hit by a train tomorrow, what happens? Right. But I appreciate the question across the board because And this is, and at the end of our shows, I always ask folks questions, any listeners, and this is one of the questions I'm going to ask you, right? But are we living our life in a way um, that we're ready if we're here by train tomorrow, (laughs) right? As morbid as that sounds, but are we, are we, are we living a life in a way to where today was our last day that we would be happy with our relationships, um, that we would know that we did more in the world, good in the world, hopefully than we did bad in the world. Um, that, uh, our family knew that knows that we love them. Right. Um, that our, you know, our, our close people, close to us, friendships, colleagues know that we are grateful for them. Um, our, our, is our, again, to go back to relationships, are our relationships well? Um, do we have relationships that we need to, to address and, and, and improve? Um, because there's no guarantee for tomorrow. And oftentimes we justify and, and think, and I said this just in a, one of our episodes this week, you know, um, we say someday a lot, you know, someday I'll do it. Someday I'll improve this or someday I'll get to it. But the path of someday leads to the town of nowhere, mm-hmm. right? The path of someday leads to the town of nowhere. And so if we continue to take the path of someday, it will get us nowhere. Um, and I, and I, and I love as fragile as this is, I love your, your, I, your, what you said about, you don't want to end up one day in the ICU on your deathbed. Um, even though you, maybe you lived a great life and had a great family. That's awesome. But that, that's the end. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, it really brings life into perspective. Um, and, and has you, has you reflect and ask questions. And so one of my questions is that for listeners, are you living your life in a way uh, that if you were gone tomorrow, um, you would be okay with it. That's one question. And then the other question comes back to humility, which we've talked a lot about humility is in what ways can you be more humble? Um, in what ways can we, uh, seek after humility more? Because after hearing Caleb, after hearing you, my friend, man, it's caused me to think quite a bit about my life and ways that I can improve. 
um, and things that I need to be more grateful for and how I need more humility in my life. I think oftentimes I'm full of pride, which I think is the opposite of humility and and self-absorbed. And I don't think so much about um, truly about how fragile the human existence is. It could be gone tomorrow, right? And uh, I need more of that humility. So I thank you for that, my friend. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah. it. Um, what are you, what are your final remarks, man? I mean, what do you want people to know? We've kind of bounced around a lot of different things, but we've kind of had a central theme here. I mean, what are, what are your final remarks? What do you want people to know or to be thinking about? I would just emphasize again that humility is a process. Uh, you mentioned, you know, sometimes you have a prideful day or a prideful time. And I, I've felt that as well. I think in my work at home, there are times when, I treasure the relationships around me when I listen, when I take time. And there are times when I say, my time is most important. I need to get this done. I need to do that. And, you know, the days, you know, I come to the end of the day, the days I treasure the most that I look back most fondly on are those days where I I enjoy the time with my coworkers, with my patients, where I, I treasure the moments I have with my family. And so I would just encourage everyone listening, be humble with your time and and your relationships and um, make sure you're valuing the things that are most important to you. Yeah. Enjoy the moment. Yeah. Well, that's well said, my friend. Um, This has been a really uh, good episode. Uh, I think it's caused me to, uh, to uh, just deeply reflect and it hasn't been a lot of episodes that I've done where I've just been blown away by (laughs) the, experience of another. I've been really impressed with a lot of experience that has sat sat across this table or on a Zoom call or whatever we've, however we've done these episodes. I've been impressed a lot and I've been grateful a lot, but man, today I've just been blown away. So um, thank you for for joining. Uh, Caleb and I are now going to go spend time with our families and have (laughs) a barbecue over at my house. Uh, But uh, gosh, just appreciate your friendship, man, and appreciate your experience and what you brought to the show today. and, And thanks for being on. Yeah, no problem. I It was a good opportunity to reflect. I think I haven't been able to vocalize a lot of these experiences and thoughts I've had, and it means a lot to be able to share them. Yeah, I'm glad, man. All right. Uh, thanks for tuning in, listeners. I uh, hope to have you back on the show. Uh, listening, <laughs> not as a guest, but uh, hope hopefully you're back as a listener. And, and until next time, be safe out there um, and enjoy, enjoy your life and, and the moments that you're given. 